Book Three, Chapters Four and Five of the Fatal Three by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, The Grave on the Hill. After that visit to the great white barrack on the road to Saint Andre, Mildred felt that her business at Nice was finished; that there was nothing more for her to learn. She knew all the sad story now all except those lights and shadows of the picture which only the unhappy actor in that domestic tragedy could have told her the mystery of the past had unfolded itself stage by stage from that sunday afternoon when cesar castellani came to enderby manor and out of trivial seeming talk launched a thunderbolt the curtain was lifted there was no more to be done and yet mildred lingered at nice loving the place and its environs a little for their own beauty and feeling a strange and sorrowful interest in the scene of her husband's misfortunes there was another reason for remaining in the gay white city in the fact that lady lochinvar had taken a fancy to miss ransom and that the young lady seemed to be achieving a remarkably rapid cure of her infatuation for the italian it may have been because at the palais montano she met a good many italians and that the charm of that nationality became less potent with familiarity there was music too at the palais and to spare according to mr stuart who was not an enthusiast and was wont to shirk his aunt's musical reunions mildred was delighted to see her husband's niece entering society under such agreeable auspices she went out with her occasionally just enough to make people understand that she was not indifferent to her niece's happiness and for the rest lady lochinvar and mrs murray were always ready to chaperone the frank bright girl who was much admired by the best people and was never at a loss for partners at dances whoever else might play wallflower mrs greswold invited mr and mrs murray and malcolm stuart to a quiet little dinner at the westminster and the impression the young man made upon mildred's mind was altogether favourable he was certainly not handsome but his plainness was of an honest scottish type and his freckled complexion and blue eyes sandy hair and moustache were altogether different from the traditionary judas colouring of castellani's auburn beard and hazel eyes truth and honesty beamed in the scotchman's open countenance he looked every inch a soldier and a gentleman that he admired pamela was obvious to the most unobservant eye that she affected to look down upon him was equally obvious but it might be that her good-humoured scorn of him was more pretence than reality she made light of him openly as one of that inferior race of men whose minds never soar above the stable the gun-room or the home farm and whose utmost intellectual ingenuity culminates in the invention of a salmon fly or the discovery of a new fertilizer for turnip fields you are just like my brother-in-law henry mountford she told him from the air with which you say that i conclude sir henry mountford must be a very inferior person not at all he is the kind of man whom all other men seem to respect i believe he is one of the best shots in england his bags are written about in the newspapers and i wonder there are any pigeons left in the world considering the way he has slaughtered them i saw him shoot at monte carlo the year before last yes he went there and back in a week on purpose to shoot imagine any man coming to this divine riviera this land of lemon groves and palms and roses and violets just to slaughter pigeons he won the grand prix it was a pretty big feather in his cap said mr stuart am i to conclude that you dislike sportsmen i prefer men who cultivate their minds ah but a man who shoots well and rides straight and can play a big salmon and knows how to manage a farm cannot be altogether an imbecile i never knew a really fine rider yet who was a fool 
good horsemanship needs so many qualities that fools don't possess. And to be a crack shot, I assure you that a man must have some brains and a good deal of perseverance. And perseverance is not a bad thing in its way, Miss Ransom. He looked at her with a certain significance in his frank blue eyes, looked at her resolutely, as some bold young vandal or Visigoth might have looked at a Roman maiden whom he meant to subjugate. I did not say that sportsmen were fools, she answered sharply. I only say that the kind of man I respect is the man whose pleasures are those of the intellect, who is in the front rank among the thinkers of his age, who reads Darwin and the German metaphysicians, I suppose. I tried Darwin to see if he would help me in my farming, but I can't say I got very much out of him in that line. There's more in old Virgil for an agriculturist. I'm not a reading man, you see, Miss Ransom. I find by the time I've read the daily paper my thirst for knowledge is pretty well satisfied. There's such a lot of information in the London papers, and when you add the Figaro and the New York Herald, there's not much left for a man to learn. I generally read the quarterlies, as a duty, to discover how many dull books have enriched the world during the previous three months. That's a great deal more reading than my brother-in-law gets through. He makes a great fuss about his times every morning, but I believe he seldom goes beyond the births, marriages and deaths, or a report of a billiard match. He reads the field as a kind of religion, and Bailey's magazine, and I think that's all. Do you like men who write books, Miss Ransom, as well as men who read them? Pamela crimsoned to the roots of her hair at this most innocent question. Malcolm Stewart marked that blush with much perplexity. When one is interested in a book, one likes to know the author, she replied with cautious vagueness. Do you know many writers? Not many. In fact, only one. Who is he? Mr. Castellani, the author of Nepenthe. Nepenthe? Ah, that's a novel people were talking about some time ago. My aunt was full of it because she fancied it embodied some of her own ideas. She wanted me to read it. I tried a few chapters, said Malcolm, making a wry face. Sickly stuff. People who are not in the habit of reading the literature of imagination can hardly understand such a book as Nepenthe, replied Pamela severely. They are out of touch with the spirit of the book. One has to be trained up to that kind of thing, I suppose. One must forget that two and two make four in order to get into the proper frame of mind, eh? Is the author of Nepenthe an interesting man? He was shrewd enough to interpret the blush aright. The author of Nepenthe was a person to be dreaded by any aspirant to Miss Ransom's favor. He is like his book, answered Pamela briefly. Is he a young man? I don't know your idea of youth. He is older than my aunt, about five and thirty. Stuart was just thirty. One point in his favor, anyhow, he told himself, not knowing that to a romantic girl years may be interesting. Handsome? That is always a matter of opinion. He is just the kind of man who ought to have written Nepenthe. That is really all I can tell you, said Pamela with some irritation. I believe Lady Lochinvar knew Mr. Castellani when he was a very young man. She can satisfy your curiosity about him. I am not curious. Castellani. An Italian, I suppose. One of my aunt's innumerable geniuses. She has a genius for discovering geniuses. When I see her with a new one, I am always reminded of a child with a little colored balloon. So pretty, till it bursts. Pamela turned her back upon him in a rage and went over to the piano to talk to Mrs. Murray, who was preparing to sing one of her repertoire of five Scotch ballads. Shall it be gin a body or hunting tower? she asked meekly. 
and nobody volunteering a decisive opinion, she chirruped the former coquettish little ballad and put a stop to social intercourse for exactly four minutes and a half. After that evening Mr. Stewart knew who his rival was and with what kind of influence he had to contend. An author, a musical man, a genius. Well, he had very few weapons with which to fight such an antagonist, he who was neither musical nor literary, nor gifted with any of the graces which recommend a lover to a sentimental girl. But he was a man, and he meant to win her. He admired her for her frank young prettiness, so unsophisticated and girlish, and for that perfect truthfulness of mind which made all her thoughts transparent. He was too much a man of the world to ignore the fact that Miss Ransom of Mapledown would be a very good match for him, or that such a marriage would strengthen his position in his aunt's esteem. Women bow down to success. Encouraged by these considerations, Mr. Stewart pursued the even tenor of his way, and was not disheartened by the idea of the author of Nepenthe, more especially as that attractive personage was not on the ground. He had one accomplishment over and above the usual outdoor exercises of a country gentleman. He could dance, and he was Pamela's favorite partner wherever she went. No one else waltzed as well. Not even the most gifted of her German acquaintance. Not even the noble Spaniards who were presented to her. He had another and still greater advantage in the fact that he was often in the young lady's society. She was fond of Lady Lochinvar and spent a good deal of her life at the Palais Montano, where, with Mrs. Murray's indefatigable assistance, there were tennis parties twice a week. That charming garden, with its numerous summer houses, made a kind of club for the privileged few who were permitted les petites entrées. While Pamela was enjoying the springtime amongst people whose only thought was of making the best of life and getting the maximum of sunshine, Mildred Greswold spent her days in sad musings upon an irrevocable past. It was her melancholy pleasure to revisit again and again the place in which her husband had lived, the picturesque little village under the shadow of the tall cliff, every pathway which he must have trodden, every point from which he must have gazed across the bay, seaward or landward, in his troubled reveries. She dwelt with morbid persistence on the thought of those two lives, both dear to her, yet in their union how terrible a curse! She revisited the villa until the old caretaker grew to look upon her as a heaven-sent benefactress, and until the village children christened her the English Madonna, that pensive look recalling the face of the statue in a church yonder, so mildly sad, a look of ineffable sweetness tinged with pain. She sat for hours at a stretch in the sunlit garden, amongst such flowers as must have been blooming there in those closing hours of Fay's wedded life, when the shadow of her cruel fate was darkening round her, though she knew it not. She talked to people who had known the English lady. Alas, they were all dubious in their opinions. None would answer boldly for the husband's innocence. They shrugged their shoulders, they shook their heads. Who could say? Only the good God would ever know the truth about that story. The place to which she went oftenest in those balmy afternoons was the burial-ground on the hill, where Fay's grave with its white marble cross occupied one of the highest points in the enclosure, and stood out sharp and clear against the cloudless sapphire. The inscription on that marble was of the briefest. Vivian Ransom, died April 24, 1868, eternally lamented. Below the cross stretched the grass mound without shrub or flower. It was Mildred's task to beautify this neglected grave. She brought a florist from the neighborhood to carry out her own idea, and on her instruction he removed the long, rank grass from the mound, and planted a cross of roses, eight feet long, dwarf bush roses, closely planted, gloire de Dijon, 
and Maréchal Niel. She remembered how Fay had reveled in the rose garden at the Hook, where midsummer was a kind of carnival of roses. Here the roses would bloom all the year round, and there would be perpetual perfume and blossom and color above poor Fay's cold dust. Chapter Five. Pamela changes her mind. Lucifer himself, after his fall, could not have felt worse than Cesar Castellani when he followed Mildred Greswold to Nice, as he did within a week after she left Palanza. He went to Nice partly because he was an idle man, and had no desire to go back to English east winds just when the glory of the southern springtide was beginning. He was tolerably well furnished with money, and Nice was as good to him as any other place, while the neighborhood of Monte Carlo was always an attraction. He followed in Mildred's footsteps, therefore but he had no idea of forcing himself upon her presence for some time to come. He knew that his chances were ruined in that quarter for the time being, if not forever. This was his first signal overthrow. Easy conquests had so demoralized him that he had grown to consider all conquests easy. He had unlimited faith in the charm of his own personality, his magnetic power, as he called it, and, behold, his magnetic power had failed utterly with this lovely, lonely woman who should have turned to him in her desolation as the flowers turned to the sun. For once in his life he had overrated himself and his influence, and in so doing he had lost the chance of a very respectable alliance. Fifteen hundred a year would be at least bread and cheese, he reflected, and to marry an English heiress of a good old family would solidify my position in society. The girl is pretty enough, and I could twist her round my finger. She would bore me frightfully. But every man must suffer something. There is always a discord somewhere amidst the harmony of life, and if one's teeth are not too often set on edge by that false note, one should be content. He remembered how contemptuously he had rejected the idea of such a marriage in his talk with Miss Fawcett, and how she had been set upon it. I should stand ever so much better with her if I married well and solidified myself into British respectability. I might naturalize myself and go into Parliament, perhaps, if that would please the good soul at Brighton. What will she leave me when she dies, I wonder? She is muter than the Sphinx upon that point. And will she ever die? Brighton is famous for pauper females of ninety and upwards. A woman like Miss Fawcett, who lives in cotton wool and has long done with the cares and passions of life, might go well into a second century. I don't see any brilliancy in the prospect there. But so long as I please her and do well in the world, she will no doubt be generous. He told himself that it was essential he should make some concession to Miss Fawcett's prejudices now that he had failed with Mildred. So long as he had hoped to win that nobler prize, he had been careless how he jeopardized the favor of his elderly patroness. But now he felt that her favor was all in all to him, and that the time for trifling was past. She had been very generous to him during the years that had gone by since she first came to his aid almost unasked, and helped him to pay his college debts. She had come to the rescue many times since that juvenile entanglement, and her patience had been great. Yet she had not failed to remonstrate with him at every fresh instance of folly and self-indulgent extravagance. She had talked to him with an unflinching directness. She had refused further help. But somehow she had always given way and the check had been written. Again and again she had warned him that there were limits even to her forbearance. If I saw you working earnestly and industriously, I should not mind even if you were a failure, said his benefactress severely. I have worked and I have produced a book which was not a failure, 
replied César with his silkiest air. One book in a decade of so-called literary life, did the success of that book result in the payment of one single debt? Dearest lady, would you have a man waste his own earnings, the first fruits of his pen, the grains of fairy gold that filtered through the mystic web of his fancy? Would you have him fritter away that sacred product upon importunate hosiers or vindictive bootmakers? That money was altogether precious to me. I kept it in my waistcoat pocket as long as ever I could. The very touch of the coin thrilled me. I believe cabmen and crossing sweepers had most of it in the long run, he concluded with a remorseful sigh. Miss Fawcett had borne with his idleness and his vanity as indulgent mothers bear with their sons, but he felt that she was beginning to tire of him. There were reasons why she should always continue forbearing, but he wanted to ensure himself something better than reluctant subsidies. These considerations being taken into account, Mr. Castellani was fain to own to himself that he had been a fool in rejecting the substance for the shadow, however alluring the lovely shade might be. But I loved her, he sighed. I loved her as I had never loved until I saw her fair Madonna face amidst the century-old peace of her home. She filled my life with a new element. She purified and exalted my whole being. And she is thrice as rich as that prattling girl. He ground his teeth at the remembrance of his failure. There had been no room for doubt. Those soft violet eyes had been transformed by indignation and had flashed upon him with angry fire. That fair Madonna face had whitened to marble with suppressed passion. Not by one glance, not by one tremor in the contemptuous voice, had the woman he loved acknowledged his influence. He put up at the Cosmopolitan, got in half a dozen French novels of the most advanced school from Calignani's library, and kept himself very close for a week or two. But he contrived to find out what the ladies at the Westminster were doing through Albrecht the Courier, who believed him to be Miss Ransom's suitor, and was inclined to be communicative after being copiously treated to box or petit verre, as the case might be. From Albrecht, Castellani heard how Miss Ransom spent most of her time at the Palais Montano, or gadding about with her ladyship and Mrs. Murray, how, in Albrecht's private opinion, the balls and other dissipations of Nice were turning that young lady's head, how Mrs. Greswold went for lonely drives day after day, and would not allow Albrecht to show her the beauties of the neighborhood, which it would have been alike his duty and pleasure to have done. He had ascertained that her favorite and indeed habitual drive was to Saint-Jean, where she was in the habit of leaving the fly at the little inn where she strolled about the village in a purposeless manner. All this appeared to Albrecht as eccentric and absurd, and beneath a lady of Mrs. Greswold's position. She would have employed her time to more advantage in going on distant excursions in a carriage and pair, and in lunching at remote hotels, where Albrecht would have been sure of a bonne main from a gratified landlord, as well as his commission from the livery stable. Castellani heard with displeasure of Pamela's dancings and junketings, and he told himself that it was time to throw himself across her pathway. He had not been prepared to find that she could enjoy life without him. Her admiration of him had been so transparent, her sentimental fancy so naively revealed, that he had believed himself the sultan of her heart, having only to throw the handkerchief whenever it might suit him to claim his prey. Much as he prided himself upon his knowledge of human nature, as exemplified in the softer sex, he had never estimated the fickleness of a shallow sentimental character like Pamela's. No man with a due regard to the value and dignity of his sex would conceive the ruthless rapidity with which a young lady of this temperament will transfer her affections and her large assortment of daydreams and romantic fancies from one man to another. 
no man could conceive her capacity for admiring in number two all those qualities which were lacking in number one no man could imagine the exquisite adaptability of girlhood to surrounding circumstances had castellani taken miss ransom when she was in the humour he would have found her the most amiable and yielding of wives a model english wife ready to adapt herself in all things to the will and the pleasure of her husband unselfish devoted unassailable in her belief in her husband as the first and best of men but he had not seized his opportunity he had allowed nearly a month to go by since his defeat at palanza and he had allowed pamela to discover that life might be endurable nay even pleasant without him and now hearing that the young lady was gadding about and divining that such gadding was the high road to forgetfulness mr castellani made up his mind to resume his sway over miss ransom's fancy without loss of time he called upon a dashing american matron whom he had visited in london and paris and who was now the occupant of a villa on the promenade des anglais and in her drawing-room he fell in with several of his london acquaintances he found however that his american friend mrs montague w brown had not yet succeeded in being invited to the palais montano and only knew lady lochinvar and miss ransom by sight her ladyship is too standoffish for my taste said mrs montague brown but the girl seems friendly enough no style not as we americans understand style i am told she ranks as an heiress on this side but at the last ball at the cercle she wore a frock that i should call dear at forty dollars that young steward is after her evidently i hope you are going to the dance next tuesday mr castellani i want someone nice to talk to now my waltzing days are over castellani protested that mrs montague brown was in the very heyday of a dancer's age and would be guilty of gross cruelty to terpsichorean society in abandoning that delightful art you make me tired said mrs montague brown with perfect good humour there are plenty of women who don't know when they're old but i calculate every woman knows when she weighs a hundred and sixty pounds when my waist came to twenty-six inches i knew it was time to leave off waltzing and i was pretty good at it too in my day i can tell you with that carriage you must have been divine replied cesar and i believe the cestus of the venus de milo must measure over twenty-six inches the venus de milo has no more figure than the peasant woman one sees on the promenade women who seem as if they set their faces against the very idea of a waist be sure you get a card for tuesday i hate a dude but i love to have some smart men about me wherever i go i shall be there said castellani bending over his hostess and imparting a confidential pressure to her fat white hand by way of leave-taking before he slipped silently from the room he had studied the art of departure as if it were a science never lingered never hummed and hawed never said he must go and didn't never apologized for going so soon while everybody was pining to get rid of him the next day there was a battle of flowers not the great floral fete before the sugar-plum carnival but an altogether secondary affair pleasant enough in the balmy weather of advancing spring every one of any importance was on the promenade and among the best carriages appeared lady lochinvar's barouche decorated with white camellias and carmine carnations she had carefully eschewed that favourite mixture of camellias and parma violets which has always a half-mourning or funereal air malcolm stuart and miss ransom sat side by side on the front seat with a great basket of carnations on their knees with which they pelted their acquaintance while lady lochinvar in brown velvet and ostrich plumage reposed at her ease in the back of the spacious carriage and enjoyed the fun without any active participation 
It was Pamela's first experience in flower fights, and to her the scene seemed enchanting. The afternoon was peerless. She wore a white gown, as if it had been midsummer, and white gowns were the rule in most of the carriages. The sea was at its bluest, the pink walls and green shutters, white walls and red roofs, the orange trees, cactus, and palm made up a picture of a city in fairyland, taken as a background to a triple procession of carriages all smothered in parma violets, Dijon roses, camellias, and narcissus, with here and there some picturesque coach festooned with oranges and lemons amidst tropical foliage. The carriages moved at a foot-pace. The pavements were crowded with smart people who joined in the contest. Pamela's lap was full of bouquets, which fell from her in showers as she stood up every now and then to fling a handful of carnations into a passing carriage. Presently, while she was standing thus, flushed and sparkling, she saw a familiar figure on the footpath by the sea, and paled suddenly at the sight. It was César Castellani, sauntering slowly along in a short coat of light-colored cloth, and a felt hat of exactly the same delicate shade. He came to the carriage door. There was a block at the moment, and he had time to talk to the occupants. "'How do you do, Lady Lochinvar? You have not forgotten me, I hope, César Castellani, though it is such ages since we met.' He only lifted his hat to Lady Lochinvar, waiting for her recognition, but he held out his hand to Pamela. "'How do you like Nice, Miss Ransom? As well as Palanza, I hope.' "'Ever so much better than Palanza.' There was a time when that coat and hat, the soupçon of dark blue velvet waistcoat just showing underneath the pale buff collar, the loose china silk handkerchief carelessly fastened with a priceless intaglio, the gardenia and pearl grey gloves would have ensnared Pamela's fancy but that time was past. She thought that César's costume looked effeminate and underbred beside the stern simplicity of Mr. Stewart's heather mixture complet. The scales had fallen from her eyes, and she recognized the bad taste and the vanity involved in that studied carelessness, that artistic combination of color. She remembered what Mildred had said of Mr. Castellani, and she was deliberately cold. Lady Lochinvar was gracious, knowing nothing to the Italian's discredit. "'I remember you perfectly,' she said. "'You have changed very little in all these years. "'Be sure you come and see me. "'I am at home at five almost every afternoon.' "'The carriage moved on, "'and Pamela sat in an idle reverie for the next ten minutes, "'although the basket of carnations was only half empty. "'She was thinking how strange it was that her heart beat no faster. "'Could it be that she was cured, and so soon? "'It was even worse than a cure.' It was a positive revulsion of feeling. She was vexed with herself for ever having exalted that overdressed foreigner into a hero. She felt she had been un-English, unwomanly even, in her exaggerated admiration of an exotic. And then she glanced at Malcolm Stuart, and averted her eyes with a conscious blush on seeing him earnestly observant of her. He was plain, certainly. His features had been moulded roughly, but they were not bad features. The lines were rather good, in fact, and it was a fine, manly countenance. He was fair and slightly freckled, as became a Scotchman. His eyes were clear and blue, but could be compared to neither sapphires nor violets, and his eyelashes were lighter than any cultivated young lady could approve. The general tone of his hair and complexion was ginger, and ginger, taken in connection with masculine beauty, is not all one would wish. But then ginger is not uncommon in the service, and it is a hue which harmonizes agreeably with highland bonnets and tartan. 
no doubt Mr. Stuart had looked really nice in his uniform. He had certainly appeared to advantage in a Highland costume at the fancy ball the other night. Some people had pronounced him the finest-looking man in the room. And again, good looks are of little importance in a man. A plainish man, possessed of all the manly accomplishments, a dead shot and a crack rider, can always appear to advantage in English society. Pamela was beginning to think more kindly of sportsmen, and even of Sir Henry Mountford. "'I'm sure Mr. Stuart would get on with him,' she thought, dimly foreseeing a day when Sir Henry and her new acquaintance would be brought together somehow. Cesar Castellani took immediate advantage of Lady Lochinvar's invitation. He presented himself at the Palais Montano on the following afternoon, and he found Pamela established there as if she belonged to the house. It was she who poured out the tea and dispensed those airy little hot cakes, which were a kind of idealized galette, served in the daintiest of doilies, embroidered with Lady Lochinvar's cipher and coronet. Mr. and Mrs. Murray were there, and Malcolm Stuart, the chief charm of whose society seemed to consist in his exhibition of an accomplished Daddy Dinmont, which usurped the conversation, and which Castellani would have liked to inoculate then and there with the most violent form of rabies. Pamela squatted on a little stool at the creature's feet and assisted in showing him off. She had acquired a power over him which indicated an acquaintance of some standing. "'What fools girls are!' thought Castellani. His conquest among women of maturer years had been built upon rock as compared with the shifting quicksand of a girl's fancy. He began to think the genus girl utterly contemptible. He has but one fault, said Pamela, when the terrier had gone through various clumsy evolutions in which the bandiness of his legs and the length of his body had been shown off to the uttermost. He cannot endure Box, and Box detests him. They never meet without trying to murder each other, and I'm very much afraid, bending down to kiss the broad, airy head, that Dandy is the stronger. Of course he is. Box is splendid for muscle, but weight must tell in the long run, replied Mr. Stewart. "'My grandmother had a dandy whose father belonged to Sir Walter Scott,' began Mrs. Murray. "'He was simply a perfect dog, and my mamma. Castellani fled from this inanity. He went to the other end of the room, where Lady Lochinvar was listening listlessly to Mr. Murray, laid himself out to amuse her ladyship for the next ten minutes, and then departed without so much as a look at Pamela. "'The spell is broken,' he said to himself as he drove away. "'The girl is next door to an idiot.' No doubt she will marry that sandy Scotchman. Lady Lochinvar means it, and a silly-pated miss like that can be led with a thread of floss silk. Moi, je m'en fiche. About a week after Mr. Castellani's reappearance, Mildred Greswold received a letter from Brighton, which made a sudden change in her plans. It was from Mr. Maltravers, the incumbent of St. Edmund's. St. Edmund's Vicarage Dear Mrs. Greswold, after our thoroughly confidential conversations last autumn, I feel justified in addressing you upon a subject which I know is very near to your heart, namely the health and welfare, spiritual as well as bodily, of your dear aunt and my most valued parishioner, Miss Fawcett. The condition of that dear lady has given me considerable uneasiness during the last few months. She has refused to take her hand from the plough. She labors as faithfully as ever in the Lord's vineyard, but I see with deepest regret that she is no longer the woman she was even a year ago. The decay has been sudden, and it has been rapid. Her strength begins to fail her, though she will hardly admit as much, even to her medical attendant, and her spirits are less equable than of old. 
she has intervals of extreme depression against which the efforts of friendship the power of spiritual consolation are unavailing i feel it my duty to inform you as one who has a right to be interested in the disposal of miss fawcett's wealth that my benefactress has consummated the generosity of past years by a magnificent gift she has endowed her beloved church of st edmund with an income which taken in conjunction with the pew rents an institution which i hope hereafter to abolish raises the priest of the temple from penury to comfort and affords him the means of helping the poor of his parish with his alms as well as with his prayers and ministrations this munificent gift closes the long account of beneficence betwixt your dear aunt and me i have nothing further to expect from her for my church or for myself it is fully understood between us that this gift is final you will understand therefore that i am disinterested in my anxiety for this precious life you dear mrs greswold are your aunt's only near relative and it is but right you should be the companion and comforter of her declining days that the shadow of the grave is upon her i can but fear although medical science sees but slight cause for alarm a year ago she was a vigorous woman spare of habit certainly but with a hardness of bearing and manner which promised a long life to-day she is a broken woman nervous fitful and i fear unhappy though i can conceive no cause for sadness in the closing years of such a noble life as hers has been unselfish devoted to good works and exalted thoughts if you can find it compatible with your other ties to come to brighton i would strongly recommend you to come without loss of time and i believe the change which you will yourself perceive in my valued friend will fully justify the course i take in thus addressing you i am ever dear mrs greswold your friend and servant samuel maltravers mildred gave immediate orders to courier and maid her trunks were to be packed that afternoon a coupe was to be taken in the rapide for the following day and the travellers were to go straight through to paris but when she announced this fact to pamela the damsel's countenance expressed utmost despondency upon my word aunt you have a genius for taking one away from a place just when one is beginning to be happy she exclaimed in irrepressible vexation she apologized directly after upon hearing of miss fawcett's illness i am a horrid ill-tempered creature she said but i really am beginning to adore nice it is a place that grows upon one what if i were to leave you with lady lochinvar she told me the other day that she would like very much to have you stay with her you might stay till she leaves nice which will be in about three weeks time and you could travel with her to paris you could go from paris to brighton very comfortably with peterson to take care of you perhaps you would not mind leaving nice when lady lochinvar goes pamela sparkled and blushed at the suggestion i should like it very much if lady lochinvar is in earnest in asking to have me i am sure she is in earnest there is only one stipulation i must make pamela you must promise me not to renew your intimacy with mr castellani with all my heart aunt my eyes have been opened he is thoroughly bad style End of chapters four and five